Hello and welcome to Calm Conversations with the Voice of Reason. I'm your host, Benjamin Boyce, and today's conversant is Thomas Bogardus, who is an associate professor of philosophy in the Religion and Philosophy Division of Seaver College. And he has been doing various different interviews and debates on the YouTubes around the topic of gender over the past year or so. And I wanted to get his input into this from the perspective of a philosopher and a Catholic. So in this conversation, we talk about the different things that he's learned about the gender debate itself, not necessarily gender, but we also talk about gender as well. We also talk about Catholicism and a bit of theology. He's a great guy. And if you want to learn more about him and read his writing, links to which will be in the description. You can also find him on Twitter and that will be linked in the description as well. Without further ado, here is Thomas Bogardus. This is a semester where I have only two classes, so that's pretty nice. That's sort of a light teaching load. Oh. So I have a lot more free time. What um what are the two classes? Ethics and philosophy of religion. Oh, cool. Which is better? Um I mean, it often depends on the students in the room and the sort of chemistry that the students have. But uh, I guess material-wise, I sort of like philosophy of religion better. I always feel like I'm just pretending to be an ethicist. I'm not. I'm not really an ethicist. <laughs> I just have to cover it. Yeah, I think that's the only way to be an honest ethicist. Okay. <laughs> yeah, maybe it's better that the students have someone like that. Who's <laughs> like, yeah. I don't really know. <laughs> Here are the views. <laughs> I don't, I still, I don't get ethics. I, I really didn't understand it as an intellectual project. It's either evident or it's not evident. I don't know though, but people got to think about this stuff. Yeah. Well, um, I, I tell them it's important to, you know, check theories against your moral intuitions. Um, but it is nice to do some theorizing and try to organize and systematize our intuitions and see. Hmm. Yeah. see what they all have in common, you know, come up with a theory, like what we do in science, you know, make observations and then try yeah. to come up with a theory that explains all the observations. I'm and just taking is, some notes. Um, you're taking right. notes. Uh, that's well, my job, not, but you can do it. I'm not going to stop you. If you no, want to take really, notes, I'm just yeah, filling out the date and the time right now. Yeah. Taking notes was not the, the right word. I'm writing some notes down in case they're relevant during our conversation. Do you have a so message? I, was, I wasn't really sure what you wanted to talk about, so I just came up with a few ideas in case we need ideas. I always love ideas. Um, I fly by the seat of my pants, though, for the okay. most part. Is your last name, is it Eastern European or possibly Greek? Yeah, some people guess Greek, um, but I think it's actually a Latinized Dutch name. Oh, yeah, so I know in German they have Baumgarten, which is orchard, like a tree garden. And I guess the Dutch have a similar word, Boomgarten, which is like a tree garden. And then that got like short. Is that where you corrupted. go to pluck your muskets? Is it what? You're plucking your muskets at the boom garden? Oh, right. Um, wait, what's a musket? Is, a musket a is a it's old school rifle. Yeah, okay. What, what's, why would that be in an orchard? Well, because it's a boom garden. That's where the muskets grow. Oh, I got it. Oh, you go right. and you pluck them. Shooting range slash orchard. <laughs> got yeah. it. Yeah. Um, yeah, I guess it got shortened and corrupted to Bougard and then Bogard. And oh. then sometime in like the Renaissance when people are trying to sound fancier, it got Latinized. 
Okay. Interesting. Okay. I was wondering because you're Catholic, but it would be interesting if your family was like, kind of had that Greek Orthodox thing. How did you get into the Catholicism? Um, well, my mom's side of the family is Cuban, so there was some Catholicism back there, but, um, my mother was raised here in the States and she was raised the Lutheran, um, which is how she met my father actually through the Lutheran church. Um, so I was raised Lutheran as well. Uh, but then in grad school, I met some really intelligent Catholics, um, in my cohort, like other grad students. And, you know, eventually we got around to talking about religion and I was like, Sorry, I'm going to have to do this to you, but here's why you're wrong. <laughs> and I gave him all the objections I'd learned, learned to Catholicism, like growing up Lutheran. Um, but I guess it was really striking to me how easily and quickly they handled those objections and turned out I was wrong. And um, huh. yeah, so that, that really stuck out to me and made an impression on me. And so then, I, of course, I went back and I was like, I'm going to do more research and come back with better objections. But then I think eventually I just researched myself out of Lutheranism and came to discover that I think the Catholics were actually right and the Reformation was a mistake. Okay. (laughs) Right how then? Uh, Right in what way? Like right in the lineage? Like they're they're the true uh, descendants or right in their thought? Um, Well, growing up Lutheran, which... The, the major wedge that divided the Lutherans from the Catholics was a certain doctrine, a theological doctrine of justification. And so the Lutherans, and Luther himself thought that the Catholics were in grave theological error with respect to this doctrine. Um, Luther thought that, well, I don't know how many details you want, but I could just stop there and then you can Go tell me it. if you want more details. Justification. About... Justification for what or from whom to whom? That's a good question. <laughs> Um, So when the New Testament talks about justification, it's often um, sort of unclear what they're talking about. There's a few things that we, sometimes it's just translated salvation or saved. Um, And sometimes it's unclear exactly what we're being saved from. And there are a few candidates for what we're being saved from. And one of them is like our um, debt that we've incurred to God because of our sin. That's one of the things that um, the New Testament teaches us that we're saved from. Um, but another thing is like, uh, we've got this propensity to keep sinning. Um, we just keep making mistakes. Um, even after, you know, if you become a Christian, even after you become Christian, you still keep making mistakes and sinning. And and so, um, there's something else that the New Testament talks about us being saved from. And then, uh, finally there's, the fact that we're living in this sort of fallen world and the world is not the way it's supposed to be. And the New Testament promises that one day God is going to renew the earth and make it back the way it was supposed to be, something like the Garden of Eden, but it'll work this time. <laughs> um, so there's like three things that we need to be saved from. And um, there's a lot of verses, especially in Paul's letters, where he says that we're saved by faith alone, through grace alone. And so Luther really um, caught on to that and thought, okay, so that means salvation is by faith alone, um, through grace alone, through Christ alone. Um, But I think that Paul was just talking about one of those things that we're being saved from, namely our sin debt, um, the debt that we've incurred to God for our past sins. But as for the other things, um, especially like being saved from our propensity to sin, 
think the New Testament's pretty clear that that requires our cooperation and at least a little bit of effort on our part. We can't do it on our own, but it requires cooperation. So it's not just a passive sort of enterprise. You have to you have to do mm-hmm. something. Um, sometimes that's called sanctification, trying to become holier, trying to become a better person. Yeah. Um, so yeah, if, I think that the a lot of the debate in the Reformation, unfortunately, was um, purely verbal. And uh, people were just talking past each other due to an ambiguity in this word, um, justification or salvation. So I guess in that way, it's sort of like contemporary sex gender debates, because unfortunately in these debates as well, um, there's a whole lot of ambiguity and talking past each other. Hmm. Yeah. I dipped into your vouch. Oh, go ahead. I guess it's a debate. Um, I almost said conversation, but maybe it wasn't. <laughs> but it just seems like he was, he, he, he's got this set of tools that he's using to f- advance his um, position, I guess. You And you were going, uh, and from what I gathered, I didn't watch the whole thing. You're like, wait, you just, you just moved the terms. Like, so are we talking about truth? Or are we, are we just, are we playing word games? It seemed like, I don't want to distill his argument into that, but he's a very deft debater, but it doesn't seem like you two were ha- having a conversation that was arriving even at the same place or aimed at the same direction. Yeah. I mean, when I, when I got that invitation, I was a little reluctant to accept it because I watched some of the episodes of that channel. Um, that's modern day debate. And I saw some of what was going on in these internet debates and it was, um, Fortunately, a lot of them are like what I suspected they would be and seems to be an exercise in what philosophers would call like rhetoric. And there's, there's a long-standing kind of rivalry or animosity between um, philosophers and people who are only interested in, you know, developing or perfecting their rhetoric. Um, I mean, back in ancient Greece, um, Socrates and Plato uh, had a lot of friction with the sophists. And the sophists were infamous for, well, from our perspective, infamous for um, promising uh, only to teach their students to be persuasive and not so much interested in like getting to the truth of the matter. Certainly not <clears throat> interested in admitting when you're wrong and growing and changing your mind and following the evidence where it leads. And um, yeah, a lot of these internet debates, I think, are sort of exercises in developing and perfecting rhetoric and becoming more persuasive. Um, and I recently reread through um, St. Augustine's Confessions, and he was talking about his childhood education and how focused it was on developing rhetoric. Um, so I, I guess at one time, and for a long time, that was like a primary goal of education, teaching people to be well-spoken and persuasive. And so I think there, I think the YouTube uh, ecosystem is operating as a kind of... Um, I don't know if there's any formal education going on in rhetoric, but there's certainly a kind of filtration going on or a selection process going on. And the, those who are naturally good at um, rhetoric kind of rise to the top and become influencers and get a lot of subscribers. And yeah, so unfortunately, um, I think that YouTube has facilitated that. And, and I guess we should blame ourselves too. Uh, humans have a kind of short attention span and we like that sort of infotainment and gladiatorial um, kind, of, kind of aspect to our conversations. Uh, I'm probably preaching to the choir here. I imagine you're well well aware of all that's going on on YouTube. But yeah, anyway, I think there are a lot of people like that. And so I was a little reluctant to accept the debate because I thought uh, this is just going to be a kind of um, 
it's, it's going to produce more heat than light. It's not going to be a really productive conversation. Um, and then also, I mean, Vosh and I have such different backgrounds, <laughs> and, uh, different kinds of training. Um, I knew I thought we were going to approach this topic in such different ways that it probably wouldn't be super productive. But then I actually saw him have a conversation with Deborah So, um, and it seemed like he was much more chill and reasonable. And that's what changed my mind. And I thought, oh, well, if it was like that, then I think it might be worth doing. So then I accepted. And I think that on the whole, it went um, about as well as I could have hoped. Um, we did get sidelined on some weird semantic issues, but I guess that's to be expected um, in this sort of debate where a lot of what's being contested um, is the meaning of certain words. So yeah, we got hung up on meanings of words and what yeah. a definition is and so on. Yeah. Um, I guess that's, that's important for laying the groundwork, um, the meaning of a word or how one goes about defining a word or, or the use of a word maybe, which is associated to its meaning. Um, but when we're talking about as men and women, we're not talking about words. We're talking about bodies. We're talking about power. We're talking about society. Uh -huh. We're talking about like our entire existence is founded on these two things, right? I mean... I think it's fair to say none of us would exist without men and women uh, conjoining um, and getting along to a certain degree. So when it gets hung up in the word games, like what's being obfuscated or what's, what's, what's happening there? I guess it's really fun for people to tune in to and watch this stuff and consume this as content. Um, yeah. Well, um, yeah, I wrote down before our conversation, I wrote down like five major major uh, things I've learned by getting into these sort of gender debates. Since 2016, I, I started thinking about this and reading into it. Um, I wrote down five big discoveries I've made or revelations I've had, things I've, things I've learned um, from entering into this literature. Um, and I guess one of them is, um, this was actually, this was number three on my list. <laughs> number three on my list of the the most interesting things I've learned was that um, turns out that although a lot of a lot of uh, controversy surrounds what these words mean um, at least among philosophers there's pretty much agreement not virt virtually everybody agrees that um, what's happening here is an intentional attempt to revise the meanings of words virtually everybody grants that you know rewind a hundred years um, the dictionary basically got it right. And the word woman referred to adult human females and the word man referred to adult human males. That's the way the words are being used um, throughout the history of feminism and um, throughout the history of modern English. Um, but philosophers are very open about the fact, most of them are um, forthright about the fact that what they're doing is engaging in a project of what they call conceptual engineering or sometimes it's called ameliorative inquiry. And what they're doing is thinking about um, what these words should mean, not what they do mean, but what they should mean. And they're self-consciously proposing new meanings for these words. So I think that the way words work is words are just little sounds or symbols um, that we use to express concepts. Um, and then we can join concepts into thoughts and then we can have a complete thought. And so we use words to get each other to think certain kinds of thoughts. Um, 
And so the way I would describe what's happening is we've had these words for a long time, man, woman, um, and they expressed certain concepts for a very long time. Man expressed the concept of being an adult human male. Woman expressed the concept of being an adult human female for a very long time. And then what, um, what from the grassroots level all the way up to the ivory tower, what's been happening for, I don't know, the last maybe 50 years is a self-conscious attempt to use an old word to express a new concept. Um, so we don't want the word man to express adult human male anymore. We want it to express something else, something having to do with maybe your social role or something having to do with maybe um, how you identify a certain kind of psychological state you have. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's been happening. And um, I wouldn't, uh, so I, I think it's might be a little hasty to dismiss it as like, well, these are just word games. Because the people who are engaged in this project take it really seriously and think that this is like a major part of the project of social justice, um, changing the meanings of words. And they'll give you lots of examples of episodes in the past where this has been, they would say, very productive or very progressive. Um, introducing new words to express concepts that, that, we, that we didn't have before. Like, for example, they'll use the example of um, sexual harassment was a, a term that was coined, hmm. um, I don't know, maybe 50 years ago. And it was used to kind of reconceptualize a behavior that we were conceptualizing in one way, like, oh, that's just Bob being Bob or something like that. Um, now it's being reconceptualized as a kind of harassment. Um, and so they'll point to examples like that and say, look how important this sort of linguistic innovation can be. And some of them point to... Um, the evolving meaning of a word like marriage and they'll say hey there too we see that um certain goals in a project of social justice were achieved by this kind of linguistic engineering this linguistic innovation hmm. and there's, there's lots of other examples as well like just stopping using words like stewardess or waitress and starting using words like flight attendant and server um lots of examples like this they'll point to of how these self-conscious linguistic changes can be beneficial, they'd say. It's just, I guess the, the one problem that I have with social justice is the aesthetic, uh, the, the, just the, uh, the erasure of aesthetics to like waitress, stewardess, yeah. like th those terms, they have an aesthetic value to them. You, you strip the, the language of that it's a loss, right? Maybe there's a gain, you know, but it, there's no even thought about, it doesn't seem like the, in the pursuit of justice, beauty, truth, and goodness. Well, I guess goodness is, is, is the main uh, goal in, in social justice and truth and beauty can, can suffer because it's, it's overloaded in, in that direction. Yeah. Yeah. Well, those not, might not be the best examples. Um, those are, there is a spectrum of like, um, benign linguistic practices to really malignant linguistic practices. They yeah, yeah. probably put yeah. stewardess and waitress over here. Um, so if you didn't like those, just think of some more like malignant linguistic okay. practices that have been Gamer words. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe there they would say, um, well, we've kind of phased out. They would say, or there's, there's an effort to phase out words like miss and misses in favor of Ms. And they'd say, wasn't that unjust the way that a woman's marital status was considered so important that it was reflected even in her title so that if you address a person like 
you have to track marital status. Like that's yeah. how important marital status. But not for men. <laughs> the men are just Mister. Yeah. Um, yeah. So they point to examples like that. Um, so maybe maybe there you'd say, oh, that's a better example. Well, of, if, uh, if you bring kind of, those up, or is it is it um, are you implying, or is is it is there a danger in implying that it was inevitable once you start to uh, tinker with language that you'll tinker with woman? Once you start oh. playing around with Mrs. and Miss, you'll slippery slopely go into woman. Like, well, what is a woman really? Yeah. Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, um, I don't know if inevitable is the right word. I mean, philosophers tend to hear that with like a strong kind of necessity attached to it. But maybe um, to be expected is a way to put it. Yeah. And once this project gets started where we start thinking... Um, you know, a way to advance the cause of social justice is through linguistic innovation. And, and I don't know, I've, um, I, I do contemporary analytic philosophy. So I'm, I'm not like a specialist in history philosophy. So this is just going to be, I'm, okay. I'm about to veer out of my lane here. Are you going to get all Wittgenstein-ing on me? Are you going to Wittgenstein us? Yeah. No, I was going to say, um, I'm going to speculate about why this, um, this practice of linguistic innovation is like caught on and become so popular and why, why people spend so much effort doing it. Um, I think it might've been a confluence of two, two factors. One was um, a sort of the spirit of the enlightenment was one of trying to um, be authentic, trying to express one's authentic self and throwing off the shackles of, it, of sort of um, social influences, whether they be as a result of your culture or your state, or your nation, or your religion. Um, we want our beliefs to be formed um, in response to the truth and evidence and not just be the result of social forces. And we want our desires and our preferences to be generated from within and be authentic and not be given to us by our culture or our nation. Okay. And so, yeah, that, that sort of captures the Enlightenment. Um, so that was one sort of stream that led to the current river that we're observing. And I think the other stream um, wasn't so popular during the Enlightenment, but shortly after the Enlightenment, there was a resurgence in a kind of view of the world that um, I like to call creative anti-realism, but which sometimes goes by the name of postmodernism. Okay. Um, but that, that word postmodernism means a lot of different things to a lot of yeah. different people. But I think what the view basically is, is um, it's this, it's the idea that uh, the reality um, is sort of indescribable. It's ineffable. It's inexpressible. As soon as you start trying to describe it or capture it, you are imposing a sort of um, conceptual scheme on it that can't possibly correspond to reality itself. Reality itself has no boundaries. It has no joints. Um, it's just, it's a kind of like amorphous blob of cookie dough. And then we come along with our concepts and start making these little imprints and saying like, yeah. here are the continents, for example. And we just like made up how many continents there were going to be. Here are the color categories. We like approached the color spectrum and said, here are the color categories. We could have done it differently. This is the way we in fact did it. And the spectrum itself has no boundaries. Okay, so that's a kind of view about our relationship to reality um, that, as I said, I like to call creative anti-realism or postmodernism. It goes way back 
But sometime in the, I think the 19th century, it sort of joined up with this enlightenment emphasis on authenticity. And I think what, what might have resulted, the sort of hybrid offspring of this union was um, something that I think we could recognize all around us. It's an emphasis on being your authentic self. That's, that's sort of the sole virtue that we have left. You want to be true to yourself. You want to express your authentic self. But also, there's there are sort of no limits, <laughs> there are sort of like no boundaries to what you could be, um, because these categories that we're using are all, as they would say, social constructs, and the boundaries are malleable and arbitrary, and we can change them. And so it's really up to us what what we are and what we want to be. So yeah, we get this. Yeah, so. Well, I don't know if that makes sense, but no, it does. There's a okay. lot going on because you're making me think about where we started with um, the doctrine around justification or salvation, okay. and how just the topic of sin um, and salvation brings up a lot of questions. Like, what does it mean to be sinful? What does it mean to be divorced from creation what does it mean that the world isn't what it should be and that we are supposed to participate in making it what it should be and why is mankind the only one that has this should that we can or cannot uh you know engage or we could or could not go along with and what are what what does all that mean it seems like there's this this distance between us and the world and the Christian doctrine comes along and, and, and facilitates that imposition of, of our consciousness on the world, which is the same thing as this postmodern or this uh, creative anti-realism plus individualism. It's like the, the world's out there. We're going to impose ourselves on, on it. You know, God, 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 somehow we separate ourselves from reality and God is going to help us get back into reality. So there's still that distance. Right? It's, it seems like I just, I'm seeing, or I'm hearing, or I'm feeling parallels between these two, uh, between Christianity and, and what Christianity birthed, which would be the Enlightenment. Oh, um, yeah, well, I guess it's often described that this is a universal human experience, looking out upon reality and having the impression that things are not the way they're supposed to be. <laughs> I think that um, a lot of people feel that way. Um, somehow, things aren't quite right. Things aren't really the way they're supposed to be, or at least things could be better. Maybe that's that's a more neutral way to put it. Um, you had said, what does that mean? Or what is sin? What does it mean for the world to not be the way it should be? Um, what does that well, say about us, I guess? Yeah. Well, I think what we'd have to do is like put on different lenses and investigate the claim from different perspectives. And I could tell you what it means from the, the Christian perspective. Um, and that's, that's the one I favor. That's the one I, that's the one I sort of prefer. Um, but I guess uh, other interesting questions are, what would that mean from a kind of enlightenment, naturalistic perspective, where we're like throwing off the shackles of religion and the state um, and trying to, uh, you know, understand the world ourselves using the natural light of reason and our own observation. Um, we could also ask, what does it mean to a sort of postmodern person who, who thinks that um, reality itself has no boundaries or or structure and we impose structure on it. Um, yeah. Is it, you want to, is that what you want to talk about? We want to sure. try to think, think yeah. through that. Whatever, whatever yeah. floats your boat. All right. 
so the question was um what does it mean to say the world is not the way it should be yeah sort of what's the christian take on that um i think the christian take on that is that um well, i can tell you the sort of aristotelian view which i find really charming and although it's quaint and given aristotle's understanding of the solar system i think there's some deeper truth to it um and this aristotelian system was absorbed into the work of thomas aquinas and um the whole sort of medieval view of the world i think okay so the aristotelian view was um all of all of nature literally all of nature not just humans but all of nature is um sort of directed or aimed at um the prime mover um there's this thing that's all that's perfectly ultimately good and everything in nature is so to speak trying to become as much like the prime mover as it can um everything that has at least some degree of existence is trying to sort of maximize and perfect its existence trying to perfect itself to the degree that its limited nature allows and so it's not just humans that are involved in this it's it's sort of everything including for aristotle the elements um huh. earth earth and water and air and fire and the element that makes up the heavenly bodies ether all of it is trying to be as much like the prime mover as possible <laughs> and so um yeah although as i said like that's sort of quaint and now we know there are far more elements and we're told that since the scientific revolution this kind of natural teleology has been disproven or banished i think that that case is overstated and um yeah i think there's still something to this view at, at least let's we could just limit ourselves to humans i think it's true that um humans are sort of the goal of the human life is to become as perfect as possible to become as as much like god as possible that's okay. that's basically well, in a nutshell i mean i I see, I see within, um, sorry to pick on the trans people, trans people, sorry about this, but, um, I see within the trans movement, this very visceral desire to perfect oneself, to impose oneself, true self upon oneself, right? Yeah. Which is almost an Ouroboros. It's almost that, that compulsion, not just to be whatever you, you want to be, but correct that, which is not you into what is you, right? Yeah. And, and so there's always that gap and I'm reading this fascinating book about Cortez, uh, this conquistador, well, the guy who took over Mexico. It's insane. Like what they, they were doing. It's just a crazy story. It's blowing me away. But when he, when he stumbles into Mexico, they're sacrificing humans like crazy and they have to do it. They have to sacrifice humans because the world will end if they don't go through this ritual. So it's, it seems like a a constant a human constant that we always feel compelled to participate in the correction or the sustaining of the world or the saving of the world in a way there's always that gap yeah yeah and so as i said i think that's a it's a kind of universal human experience and in fact you might think it's sort of baked into the very idea of intentional action like anytime you do something intentionally you do it for a reason <laughs> that's something that you think is good and worth doing yeah. Um, everything, literally everything you do, you do it, um, as if you do it voluntarily, you're acting in light of some reason. 
even if it was just like something silly, like moving a pen to make a point or something like that. Like I am now making a point by moving this pen. Even a trivial example like this is aimed at some good, trying to accomplish some good. Um, and so, yeah, hmm. um, that, I guess, at least concords with the Aristotelian view of humans place in nature. We're trying constantly to like aim at the good and achieve the good. Um, yeah. So as I said, that's that's the kind of Aristotelian picture of nature. And of course, Aristotle was not a Christian and believed in a sort of God, um, much more like the God of classical theism than the God of much contemporary American Protestantism. Um, but yeah, as I said, I think that's a charming view that did get incorporated into the sort of medieval picture of, of the universe. Um, and I think we've lost something by discarding that as a culture. That's that's my own opinion. Um, but you had also asked, well, what does it mean for an enlightenment sort of naturalist thinker? What does it mean for a postmodern thinker? Um, well, you had pointed out that um, something that people are doing these days is they, they are still aiming at the good and aiming at self-perfection, but people who are caught up in a kind of creative anti-realist view of reality tend to think that it's up to me what what I'm aimed at or what the good is. And there are no facts about what the good is. No, um, certainly no moral, obje objective and moral states, right? Perhaps. Yeah. So there's no, there's no fact of the matter as to what humans are directed towards or what a good human is. Like there's no fact of the matter about what a perfect human would be. There's just a variety of opinions and you can, everyone should be entitled to his or her own opinion and you should have the freedom to um, form yourself in whatever way you see fit. Oh, some wish I could remember there was a quote from like Justice Anthony Kennedy about this in one of his um, most famous majority opinions. Huh. Uh, but it's, I, I guess I could Google it and find it, but he said something like this. Um, like a basic fact about human freedom is the right to like define your own version of happiness or something like this. Yeah. Um, he thought that was one of our fundamental human rights, like the right to define the mystery of human existence or something like that. Yeah. Okay. So um, I think that Aristotle would not like that. And certainly um, that is in tension with the medieval view of the world where for Aristotle and for the medieval sort of Christian view and for Christianity since then, I think there are facts of the matter about how humans are supposed to be because there's a fact of the matter about how this prime mover is. And our goal is to try to become as much like that prime mover as possible. Um, so there's one way in which the sort of postmodern view parts ways from uh, sort of traditional Aristotelian view. And again, just to repeat, it's, it's this conviction that um, modern humans tend to have that we should be free um, to set our own ends or like define what human perfection is for us yeah. and then pursue that. So if, for me, perfection consists in, you know, playing video games all day. Um, and I don't know, what else do people do? Extreme vaping? body piercing? What? Oh, extreme, yeah, I was going to do vaping, but extreme body piercing extreme is a little bit more graphic. Yeah, basically anything, right? Um, basically anything, although asterisks, qualification to come. Um, basically, anything. You, should, you should be free to pretty much do whatever you want. Asterisks, as long as you don't hurt anyone else, I guess. Yeah. Um, and it's kind of hard to justify that, that qualification from a radical sort of 
egoistic creative anti-realist view where or really it's it's up to me to define perfection why why should i have to respect everybody else as well why shouldn't why shouldn't i be free to just trample other people's rights and so on that's certainly how you know i don't know monsters throughout history have felt about their place in reality so anyway, I just wanted to throw that out there. Um, people will often tell you, like, you should be free to do whatever you want as long as you don't trample on anyone else's rights. Um, your freedom ends where mine begins or something like that. So we we tend to grant each other a whole lot of leeway. As long as you don't hurt anyone else, you go ahead and do whatever you want. And if the thing that you want to do is, I don't know, just use your imagination, like the biggest waste of time Um put it neutrally or even worse like the most like soul destroying sort of activities that somebody can do and the, the internet affords us a lot of opportunities like that imagine somebody who just wants to do that all day we just want to go into the deepest darkest corners of 4chan or whatever and just bliss out on the racism and the pornography and whatever um as long as they're not hurting anybody else this view of the world says great you know be the author of your own life that's the story you want to write. Cool. Um, so I guess that's that's one distinction between sort of traditional Aristotelian view and the creative anti-realist view that um, that I think is now dominating the culture. Well, I just for all of its bad and all of the frictions of freedom of the liberal milieu of just do what thou wilt. Um, for all of its bad, like going backward from that, it just seems inconceivable. It's like, wait, so we're going to have somebody set the standard for everybody. Is that yeah. what we're toying with? I mean, yeah. So, oh, that, so thanks for giving me the opportunity to clarify <laughs> because I've discovered this as well. Having conversations on YouTube, as soon as I start saying that there are so I'm a moral realist and I think there are some like moral facts about yeah. how humans ought to be and what humans ought to do. And I found um, that sometimes when people hear that, especially some young people these days, they think that what I'm recommending is basically fascism or something like that. Yeah. Christian like nationalism I'm recommending or like, yeah. yeah, like what I'm advocating for is an, uh, an authoritarian state that's going to micromanage our lives. So no, I don't think that's right. And I think that as a matter hmm. of public policy, maybe what we've discovered is um, a libertarian kind of hands-off approach is probably the best way. So from a public policy perspective, maybe we should act as though um, we shouldn't we, should, we shouldn't try to enshrine in the law any picture of how humans ought to be. But nevertheless, I think there are some facts about how humans ought to be. And although we should be given the freedom to live out our own lives, what we may be doing is giving people the freedom to, you know, make mistakes and waste their lives and possibly dis destroy their own souls destroy their own characters that's the cost of this kind of libertarian approach to public policy but the benefit is it won't happen that a tyrant is takes control and a sort of um really damaging picture yeah. of how humans ought to live wields the power of the state yeah so yeah, we're, we've we've struck on this balance and I'm I'm kind of a fan I'm a fan of the American experiment. I really like um weak federal government, strong local government and we should let communities decide for themselves how they want to live. And I think that the costs are worth the benefits. Yeah.
are the benefits are worth the costs. <laughs> as long as as long as we keep it from going off the rails, because there still is that asterisk that that don't harm others. And and if we are looking at you know there are protected categories like we can we have to protect children or the society will stop right so we have to yeah. do as it's an existential need for us to protect the children from themselves or from different ideologies right yeah. so yeah, yeah. Th again this is a little bit outside of my lane but uh, my understanding is that um the framers of this american experiment um thought that if we are going to have a sort of weak federal governments and adopt a more libertarian approach to governance then we are relying on sort of moral fiber of the population the moral fiber of the citizens and if that decays to such a point that um self-government becomes i don't know what the word is untenable yeah untenable self-destructive something like that then um then this experiment's going to fail. The American experiment's going to fail if if um, we abandon moral education to such a point that we're no longer fit to govern ourselves. Then, of course, a system that allows us to govern ourselves isn't going to go very well. And I guess we see this in our own lives, you know, and that's why sometimes we do hire like a personal trainer or a dietitian or something. We realize like I'm not doing a very good job myself. I actually need someone um, <clears throat> to help me in this way. Well, now I feel again the urge to say, like, I, I am super anti-authoritarian and I want the smallest federal government possible, frankly. But at the same time, I recognize that um, the law is a tutor and it is important that the population have, like, a certain degree of character or moral education in order for in order for this experiment of self-government to work. Okay, but anti-authoritarian, just wanted to say that again. But And, and yet you still teach ethics. And yet and yeah. when we started this conversation, I'm like, I don't understand ethics. How do you communicate this stuff? It's either obvious or not. But actually, uh, as I grew up and as I grew older, and then as I became like edging into elderhood, the need to communicate the good and the true and the ethical has become an imperative because I've, I've seen what works and what doesn't work for me. And I see other people um, toying with paths that could, as you say, destroy their soul or cause them a lot of grief. And in order for me to persuade them, use my rhetorical panache to persuade them away from that, I do have to have some formative guiding principles, some sort of ethical standards. And then in order to you know, communicate them, I have to also justify them. So while I am as well anti-authoritarian, I'm also an avuncularist or a, you know, there's, there's these older people who have something to give us and, you know, I'm, I'm participating in, in that conveyance. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I feel the same way. Yeah. Um, I think that there's a lot of wisdom gained by experience and, it's to our own detriment if we ignore the democracy of the dead. Is that how Edmund Burke put it? Like, um, if we if we throw out tradition or ignore the past, we're just sort of um, depriving ourselves of the wisdom of previous generation. Um, so yeah, I think that's right. Um, I was going to pick up on something else you said. Oh, about the teaching of ethics. Yeah, it's often said that um, in ancient Greece, it was pretty a common, commonly held view, including among Aristotle and Plato, was that um, 
ethics is probably the last thing you should start to study and it shouldn't be until you're a mature adult. <laughs> no, and like that's the because, Kabbalah. Huh. What, what's that? Like the Kabbalah. Like, oh, yeah. Okay. There was, All right. You can't do that until you're like 35 or 45. Yeah. And I think that was about the age they put on it. And it's because um, they thought that ethics is the sort of systematic study or the theorizing about um, facts that we've become attuned to by the development of our moral sensibilities. So you have to be well raised um, or learn a lot by way of experience in order for you to have like a good kind of moral sense. And only then should you start thinking like, what unifies all these moral judgments that I'm making? Hmm. What, what sort of theory explains all these moral judgments that I'm making? What do all the good things have in common and all the bad things have in common? Yeah. Um, so yeah, they, <clears throat> they thought that really important component of being a good ethicist was having well-developed moral sensibilities <clears throat> and um some people <clears throat> sorry that's okay <clears throat> some that's people more. sort of chafe at that idea especially in our culture where we kind of praise youth and look askance at the elderly um yeah. telling the youth that they're they're not equipped to study something is uh, kind of countercultural. But you can see it with um, with regard to um, other sorts of things where we agree that it's possible to develop sensibilities, like um, with respect to the visual arts or with respect to music, or maybe the best example is with, with respect to food. Um, we wouldn't want uh, like a chef to have the tastes of like a six-year-old or something like that. We want a chef to have developed um well unless of, it's chef boy or d then okay. he's got his niche right unless we're making food for six-year-olds i guess then you want um a chef boy or d but um i think we all recognize that tastes can develop and some people can have better taste in food than others uh, maybe even that's controversial to say is it okay to say it with respect to huh. wine or has that been tainted by no oh, yeah wine it's it's all bullshit okay. they just make it all up right well, no, I mean, uh -huh. yeah, no matter where you go with ethics, you're always going to run into relativism because, and no. that's, and, and it's important. I mean, it, it, I think it's part and parcel of our anti-authoritarianism. It's part like, we can't, we actually can't say this is the highest good. We have to keep yeah. that. We have or to even, hedge. Or even some goods are higher than others. <laughs> it's like, really I, difficult for us to enter, enter into that in any sort of hierarchy. Um, right. And and still say okay, well, I'm an anti-authoritarian, but I do believe in gravity and good engineering. So how do I how do I walk that line right with yeah. with behavior with with human society? Yeah, I guess when it comes to like mathematics and engineering and science, there we recognize some people are better than others, and some approaches are better than others, some theories are better than others. Well, unless you're indigenous, I mean, even that's okay. being corroded. I'm sorry, I'm sorry to throw the counterfactuals. No, I, um, that was in my mind when I was saying that. And I was like, I wonder if he's going to bring that up. And sure enough, <laughs> sorry, he did. Um, but I think, We're, I don't know. Uh, so I'm squarely middle-aged and... Squarely, like what, 32? Are you serious? <laughs> <laughs> no, I am 41. Oh, good job. Wow. Okay. <laughs> hey, hanging in there. <laughs> right on. Um, pretty coherent. Um, no, squarely middle-aged. And so I've become much more comfortable and comfortable with the idea and confident in asserting that with respect to even like art and music and certainly ethics, 
Um, some people have better developed sensibilities than others, and some people seem totally insensitive to beauty and moral goodness. And I guess that's a fault of one of two things. Um, maybe not being brought up well or just poor education. Um, and I think as a culture, we are not doing a very good job of educating our children morally. And secondly, just, I don't know, um, inattentiveness to experience or a lack of a certain kind of experience. Because I think like, even if you're poorly brought up, like life will teach you pretty quickly. Um, certain kinds of behaviors are virtuous and other kinds of behaviors are vicious. Um, so why were we talking about that? Oh, I guess I was just talking about, we were talking about this experiment in self-government and how it depends yeah. on people having a certain, certain degree of moral fiber or moral integrity. And the should. Yeah. I have, and the, I, I have a difficult question. I'm okay. going to get a little, I might get roasted for this in the comments, but, um, is there, is there not an ethical content to the category of man and woman that's distinct? like a distinctive ethical content to being a man, being a woman, um, being yeah, a good man, being a good woman, being a bad man, being bad woman. Yeah. So I think um, what you might be talking about is what is traditionally called masculinity and femininity. And these are the sorts of expectations or norms that we associate with being a male or being a female. Um, and so, yeah, something that I've noticed, this is, this didn't make my list of the top five discoveries, but this might be number six, is um, in these debates, a kind of third rail that nobody wants to touch is whether it could even, any of these norms or expectations could possibly be true. <laughs> With regard to masculinity and femininity, the kind of default assumption is these are just social constructs. These are just... Um, conventions and the evidence that you get is well look how they vary across culture you know some cultures think foot binding is very feminine other cultures think you definitely shouldn't wear a skirt if you're a man but other cultures are like oh no that's actually fine you don't have to wear pants um so you you get the sort of argument from variation to try to convince you that these norms about okay. masculinity and femininity couldn't possibly be true they're just just conventional in the same league as the conventions we've adopted about which side of the street to drive on. Yeah. It's not like it's true that like true period that you should drive on. Gotta think drive on the right side of the road here. <laughs> I always have to think about that. I drive yeah, on the right saying. side of the road here. Um, but there's nothing really true period about that. That's just the convention in this part of the world. Okay. So some people think same thing with masculinity and femininity. But what's interesting is um, the sort of arguments that I mentioned, that sort of argument from diversity or argument from disagreement, those are the sorts of arguments that most philosophers just kind of swat down really quickly when it comes to moral relativism in your typical kind of college ethics class. Most people recognize that, well, just because there's disagreement about a certain topic doesn't mean there's no fact of the matter about that topic. Because there's, you know, there's disagreement about science and there's disagreement about history and there's even disagreement about, you know, certain parts of mathematics. But nobody thinks that, well, therefore, it's just a matter of convention that, um, you know, massive bodies attract each other with such and such a force. Or it's just a matter of convention that Julius Caesar existed or something like that. We think, you know, there really are facts of the matter when it comes to history and science and mathematics. And disagreement doesn't disprove that. 
so why think that this agreement in the realm of uh, morality would disprove moral realism? Okay. Okay. But uh, again, when it comes to like gender norms and gender expectations, people are really quick to think like, well, there, those are obviously conventions. Look at all the disagreement. That's just something I wanted to say that's kind of striking. Um, yeah. And so I think what you, the question you were raising was, could there possibly be any true gender norms? Um, is that is that the question you're raising? Or were you just pointing out that when we call someone a man or when we call someone a woman, we have expectations or there are sort of expectations embedded in that ascription? Well, I'm, back earlier, you said that um, the word man meant adult human male. I just, does it? Is that all it means? Is that always ever all only what it meant? Because okay. no. Yeah. Okay, and then the argument against that is, well, um, when we call someone a man or when we use the word man, there are these sort of like normative implications, implications about how the person should be or what the person should do. But not so when we call someone a male, when we call someone an adult human male. Yeah, um, yeah, I yeah. Guess so so yeah. Um, that is an argument that people have given. And in one of the papers I wrote uh, called Evaluating Arguments for the Sex-Gender Distinction, I considered this sort of argument, and it was given by... Uh, professional philosopher named Robin Dembra, who's at Yale. Um, and so, yeah, once again, the argument is what, what I tried to do in that paper is collect um, all the reasons that philosophers and psychologists and sociologists have given to think that um, the dictionary definitions are just wrong and a woman is not just an adult human female. A wrong or not. insufficient? Or so. I mean, definitions are supposed to be necessary and sufficient. And so okay, if it's insufficient, I guess that would mean wrong. <laughs> false. Okay. Not like morally wrong, just false. Um, in the way that if you asked what a bachelor is and I was like, well, that's just an unmarried male. You would point out that being an unmarried male is not enough to be a bachelor. Otherwise, I have a rabbit in my front yard who's an unmarried male. <laughs> he's not married and he's male. Okay, yeah, <laughs> but he's yeah. not a bachelor. And some people point out, like, you know, some, like, the Pope has taken a vow of celibacy. Is he really a bachelor? Um, we've got an unmarried male. So what we're trying to do here is give counterexamples to the definition, in this case, to show that the definition was not sufficient. Yeah. So, okay. um, yeah, if you were to say that being an adult human male is not sufficient to be a man, then what you're trying to, what you're doing is saying the definition is false. Um, and so, yeah, what I tried to do in that paper is collect reasons because when I was first getting into this literature, like most people, like I kind of, I had to like check the dictionary. I was like, am I wrong about what these words have meant? Like I was seeing the way that the discourse was progressing at the popular level and thinking like, that doesn't, that's not what I would have thought the words meant. So let me check the dictionary. And then I realized that these philosophers are self-consciously denying that the dictionary is correct and so i just wanted to see why and so i collected arguments in that paper and one of the arguments is the one you gave um i just in case people are keeping score at home this was um this was number four on my list of big revelations um the arguments against the dictionary definitions are not very good i think they're just not very good arguments. um this argument i thought was not sufficient to prove that the dictionary is wrong um, and that's because, okay, so again, the way the argument goes is the dictionary is saying to be a man is to be an adult human male. Those are just the same thing. Being a man is the same as being an adult human male. So a way to argue against that is to try to find some difference between 
man and adult human male. If there's any difference between them, then they're not really the same. Okay. So here's one alleged difference. Uh, our concept of being a man has these like moral implications about how you should be or how you should behave. There are these at least social expectations. Not so with adult human male. That's just a purely kind of biological concept. No moral implications, no normative implications. And so that shows that these are different things. Being a man is different from being an adult human male. There's more to being a man than being an adult human male. Okay, um, so what I said in, by way of reply, if I can remember this correctly, was um, at least one of the things I said by way of reply is that on the contrary, I think that our concept of being an adult human male does have moral implications, does have normative implications. And you can see that by just reflecting on the fact that if all you know about someone is that he's an adult human male, you are in a position to draw certain moral, make certain moral inferences. Like if somebody tells you um, that they're currently engaged in like human trafficking and they're trafficking adult human males, you don't have to ask any other questions. You already know that's wrong, right? You already know adult human males should not be trafficked in that way. Adult human males should not be enslaved. Um, you don't have to ask the further question like, well, wait, is it a man? <laughs> that doesn't matter. Yeah. Um, the fact that it's an adult human male is enough to know that um, they shouldn't be treated in that way. Uh, they shouldn't be enslaved. Okay, so there really are moral implications or normative implications, I think, right. even for concepts like adult human male and adult human female. Yeah, um, I feel like there was another reply, but I'd have to bring up a paper to kind of remember what it was. But I think that that's enough to show that the well, arguments. So it, I don't. So I don't think that my my position, which I'm terrible at articulating it, even though it's been years that I've been trying to articulate it, is that um, it's possible that um, biology can be true, sex can be true, and gender can be true too. Um, that the that that there is a we can we can define a uh, a man as an adult human male and then we can use tools of history of literature of sociology and of biology and then evolutionary psychology uh, to to extend what it means to be an adult human male because it's not just an adult human male has different, a different brain structure. Like he has a, a masculinized brain, um, that, that, uh, most, uh, adult human females lack, um, unless they were exposed to testosterone either in utero or, or through exogenous hormones later on. Um, he's got, he's got biological functions. He's got, um, he's got different drives. He's got different value sets. He has things that will fulfill him. He's got uh, weaknesses. Uh, he, he, uh, has a higher level uh, prone to criminality, uh, high, a different kind of sex drive, different, uh, I guess, quality of sex drive and the des sexual desires than, than a human female. And then, so if you take all of that all together and then you say, okay, well, we have, we have boys that are going to become men. We need to tell them, we need to communicate to them um, how to control and how to master, how to perfect themselves as men to understand themselves as men and perfect themselves as men. So, and, and all of that, I would say is, is gender, like, like a, a program of teaching, training a boy to become a man, a girl to become a woman is, is gender. And that is normative. It is, it's, it's actually imperatively normative because a human being doesn't come out of the womb 
fully formed, ready to run off into the wilderness. It takes like mm -hmm. 10 years, 18 years, 25 years for that human being to develop. And so there needs to be a lot of normativity going on in that. And, and it's very variable. It's very, there's a lot of wiggle room for whatever human beings are or aren't. We have a lot of wiggle room in what we are. But okay. so I, I guess that's what I'm saying. So gender is not falsified by it being social or normative. And, and it doesn't mean that it, it's trying to falsify sex. I think that uh, understanding of sex and understanding of nature and, and of culture come together and, and, and make for a good society, make for okay. good men and women. Yeah. Well, I agree with much of what you said. Um, one thing that came to mind was uh, the number one thing on my list, in case anyone was curious, of the top five uh, things I've learned by wading into this literature is that um, the word gender is ambiguous. And um, it basically has been since it was borrowed from linguistics and uh, deployed in psychology and philosophy. Since the get-go, it's been kind of unclear what it means, and it's been used in different ways. And um, I think that at least, I think that at like the popular level, like if you go to the hospital and you're filling out an intake form and it says, what's your gender? And then the options are male and female. They're, they're just... They're using it as a polite word for sex. They're just asking you, what's your biological sex? Yeah. But they don't want to use the word sex. Um, so they use the word gender. So sometimes the word gender is just a synonym for sex. But I think mostly um, at this level of the conversation that you and I are having right now, people who have thought a little bit more about this, people who have maybe like, taken some college classes on the topic, they tend to use the word gender um, often to refer to masculinity and femininity. And it sounds like that's what you were talking about a moment ago. You said there are base, there are certain kinds of um, physiological and social uh, concomitants to being a, an adult human male. Things that go along with being an adult human male, like high levels of testosterone, maybe a greater disposition to violence, um, certain kinds of social expectations and social roles that they're expected. Upper body to strength, right? Okay. Yeah. Facial and hair so, like, to the given, extent that you and I have. Yeah. So given if, I mean, if we're, if we want to educate boys on how to become men, what we're sort of saying is like, given that you're about to go through male puberty or whatever, and these, these are going to be the physio physiological realities, here are some rules to live by or something like that. Here are some, here, here's the way you ought to live if you're going to have this kind of body, um, if you're going to go through male puberty. Okay. So yeah, those are all things that I would categorize as masculinity. Um, and so when you say that you know, gender is one thing, sex is another. Well, I agree. If you're talking about masculinity, that is different from just being male. Um, because, I mean, it's possible for a male to not abide by those norms or expectations. Uh, it's possible for a female to abide by those norms and expectations that we're calling masculinity. Okay, so there's definitely a difference between masculinity and being male. And that difference is just, uh, it's a kind of, general distinction that philosophers often make between like appearance and reality. It's one thing for something to appear to be gold. It's another thing for it to actually be gold. Um, so gold is one thing and it typically appears in certain ways. Um, but the appearance is different from the underlying reality. Gold is just a certain kind of element. It's an element with a certain number of protons. Being golden or having a typical kind of gold experience is different. That's, you know, being like lustrous and yellow and malleable and inert and so on. And we know that there's such a thing as fool's gold. Pyrite has many of the appearances of gold, but it's not actually gold. 
Okay, so this is just an appearance reality distinction. Okay. Masculinity is something like appearance. Being male is something like the underlying reality. Okay, I was just going to say that, but um, that was a bit of a departure from the conversation we were having a moment ago about whether these facts about normativity or moral implications disproves the, the dictionary definition of man. Um, because it may well be that to be a man is just to be an adult human male. And also, there are these norms and expectations and maybe like moral facts of the matter about how males should be. Um, so that's consistent. It's consistent with the view that men just are adult human oh, are adult human males. Consistent yeah. with that claim that there are these norms and expectations and rules about how men should be, because that's those would just be on this view, norms and expectations about how adult human males should be. Um, so yeah, I think once we clarify these two possible meanings of gender, we realize what you're pointing out about gender is consistent with the claim that the men just are the adult human males. Okay. Um, yeah. Something else you'd said that I just want to pick up on really quick is you said, um, and I think this is a common thought that people have in this debate. Um, you said we can define man to mean adult human male. And then you went on to talk about what would follow from that. We can define man to mean adult human male. And so what I've noticed is um, a lot of people engaging in these debates, um, and this happened a lot in that Bosch debate as well. Some people think, seem to think that um, it's, it's sort of up to us what our words mean. Um, and so if we want the word to mean something else, it can mean something else. And... I think there's some truth in that. Like, for example, if I wanted to introduce a new word, I could do it. I could, it could mean whatever I wanted it to mean. I could introduce a word like blarg and say, it means this type of thing. These are blargs. Okay, look at me. I'm the master of my own words. <laughs> but um, there are limitations to this. Because uh, when we use a public language and when we yeah, engage in a broader linguistic community, the meanings of the words are not determined by the intentions of any particular individual. And that's why it's possible to like misuse a word or misunderstand a word. So an example from the philosophical literature is like um, the distinction between like a beech tree and an elm tree. Maybe you're really good at distinguishing trees and you use the words correctly all the time, but there's a lot of us like me who often misuse like tree words. Um, and so if I call a beech tree an elm tree, intending to refer to that kind of tree, I've still said something false. I haven't used the word elm to mean beech. I've used this public word elm um, and applied it to a beech tree incorrectly. Right? Yeah. So I've made a mistake. So it's not really up to me what the words mean if I intend to communicate with like a linguistic community. Okay, so I think what happened with our with our so-called gender terms and our our so-called sex terms, terms like man and woman, male and female, we can't just sit down and have the conversation and like stipulate what the words mean. We can't just say, well, you know, for the purposes of this conversation, let man mean blah. Um, at least that's not that's not really the way to discover the facts about what a man is. What we'd have to do is like do a little bit of linguistics and like study the way the word is being used by the linguistic community and then try to figure out what that word is in fact referring to what what is this community using the word to refer to and i think that um i think a lot of even like um 
trans activist philosophers and trans inclusive philosophers, they'll admit that if you do that, what you find is that traditionally in the mainstream sort of parts of the linguistic community, the word man was used to refer to adult human males. And in many parts of the linguistic community, that still is used to refer to adult human males. Um, and if you wanted to figure out what the word male means, probably what you should do is like, see how the biologists are using the word and then try to figure out what they're referring to. Um, yeah, so the thing to do is not just to ask any particular individual, what do you have in mind when you use the word? Because a lot of individuals have mistaken conceptions. Like if you asked me, what do you have in mind when you use the word elm tree, when you use the word elm, it's gonna be a really impoverished description of what an elm tree is and probably mistaken. Um, so I've got a conception in my mind when I use the word elm, but the conception is probably totally wrong. Yeah. <laughs> So we shouldn't ask any individual, what do you have in mind when you use the word? What we should do is um, look at the community as a whole and try to figure out the best candidate, the most eligible candidate for what this word is referring to. And I think when you do that with a word like male, um, you find out that it has something to do with gametes. It doesn't really have to do with chromosomes or hormones or expectations or social roles. And when you do it with a word like man, what you find out is at least traditionally, and still these days in mainstream, in the mainstream culture, the word man is referring to adult human males. Um, so those are, those are two replies I had to what you said. Yeah. And so why, from your perspective, kind of biological, uh, bi biographical question, maybe. Um, but why, why do you think people are arguing over man and woman, not elm and beach? And yeah. why now? Yeah, well, Elman Beach, I don't know. They're, they aren't really large. They're not sexy, are they? Or, unless you, yeah, unless you have allergies. Yeah, not a lot of like social or political implications of what counts as an elm or what counts as a beach. But there are other terms that are very much like the site of longstanding battles. Um, terms like voter, citizen, um, tax. Individual. Right? Yeah. Yeah, these have big political implications. And so we fight a lot about what these words, how to use these words or how to define them in the law. Um, and as I said earlier, like marriage was one of those words. Um, there were a lot of social and political implications for the word marriage. And so that was a site of like a longstanding battle um, in our culture. Um, so why now man, woman, male and female? Yeah, I guess I'll just be repeating myself. But again, I think it's this confluence of like an enlightenment thought and a postmodern thought leading to a picture of human existence where happiness or flourishing or fulfillment is found in being your most authentic self. And oh, by the way, there are virtually no limits or boundaries to what you can be. Um, if you just use the words in the right way. Um, and so... I think some people have decided that these terms like man and woman, male and female are really like core components of your identity, your mm -hmm. character, who you are. And so if you're engaged in this kind of project of radical self-definition, you're going to, you're going to argue about what those words can mean. Yeah. I think that's what's happening. So maybe this is, developed over time but what were your first reactions to why, why did you get interested in this and or uh, to the degree that you invested time 
into it. And then as you've learned about it, where do you want it to go? If you had power in this play, where, what would you want to manifest and would it be based on your beliefs? I guess it would be based on your beliefs. And then how would you, how would you challenge or change the conversation or move uh, it in the direction that you want? All right. So two part question. And the first part was, how'd you get into this? And the second part is, where do you want to go? <laughs> where would you like the conversation to go? Um, yeah. So how did I get into this? Um, I guess it was around 2016 and trying to remember what was going on in like the public conversation then I, I do remember like Jordan Peterson was like coming on the scene then and saying things in Canada that were getting him in trouble. Um, he was worried about a kind of coerced speech and being forced to say yeah. certain things. And I remember that got my attention. Um, I mean, it got a lot of people's attention, but I did start noticing that. Uh, I don't remember exactly when there were these like bathroom bills and proposed changes to like the guidance regarding interpretation of Title IX, but I think that might have been around that time. So I don't know. Just I think a lot of people started paying attention around that time because a lot of these issues started bubbling up into the public consciousness. And I find myself in a position professionally where um, there are certainly research requirements at my job, but um, they are not so high that I feel like I'm, co I'm constrained to stay in the same area for my whole career. Like if I were at a, a super top flight research school and the standards for research were very high, there would be a lot of pressure to just keep mining the same vein, so to speak, and just mm. keep publishing papers in the very best places in my narrow area of specialization. Um, and so fortunately, I think for me, um, I'm at a sort of place where I felt free to explore new areas and sort of branch out and investigate things that interested me. And so that's what I started doing with the gender and sex stuff. Um, and then I got to a point where, you know, after reading enough, I thought, I, I think I have something to say. I think I'll start publishing papers. Um, yeah. So that's how I got into it. Um, but why? I guess I, why? Yeah. Well, no, well, I mean, well, yeah, I mean, Jordan Peterson is saying things in Canada. There's bathroom yeah. bills. I mean, is it, isn't it, there's something to the topic that yeah. interested you, captured your imagination, your interest. Yeah. Well, I guess I should say that um, I noticed the sort of things that Jordan Peterson and others were saying, and I felt like they were the sort of things that I might say, and they were getting in a lot of trouble for that. And so I was like, am I going to get in a lot of trouble for this sort of thing? And also all these people are all these opponents of people like Peterson and others are really sure that he's wrong. And so um, if he's saying the sort of things I would say, I, am I wrong? You know, and I wanted to know if I was wrong. Yeah. But I guess the deeper question is why are these issues so important? Um, yeah, I guess, uh, yeah, this isn't something I've articulated to myself or why, why did I think the issues were important? I guess I would have just thought like, well, it's obvious, right? It's obvious that these issues are important. And now as I sit here and try to articulate to myself why it's important, I guess the best I can come up with is these sorts of um, categories, like being a man and being a woman, being a male and being a female are really foundational to not only um, our laws and like our political organizations, but also to our own self-conceptions. They're really core features of our own identities. I mean, looking back a little further, the reason I 
something that drew me into philosophy was it became apparent to me that a lot of philosophers thought that religious people were stupid. <laughs> and so as a religious person, I was like, wait, am I stupid? <laughs> and that was like, that was a pretty important part of my own self-conception and identity, being Christian and being religious. And so when it was brought to my attention that all these really smart people are like, calling into question this important aspect of my identity like, yeah obviously i thought that was important and so that's why I, that's one of the things that got me reading philosophy and so i guess something similar happened around 2016 um when there were all these public conversations about what it is to be a man i guess it got my attention because i was like hold up i'm a man <laughs> and that's sort of an important part of my self-conception um pretty hmm. central to who i am so yeah, I paid attention. Uh, but uh, yeah, I don't know if that fully answers the question well, because philosophy is full of stuff like that. I mean, something else that's interesting to me in philosophy is consciousness and philosophy of mind. That is also a core part of my self-conception. I'm a conscious thing. Um, yeah, so I don't know if that fully answers the question. How did how did um, investigating what a man is, um, how did that hone your sense of self? How did that feed into, what was the feedback loop? If it, if it started from you're like, well, I'm a man, that's part of my identity. I'm, and then you start looking into this. Has your identity changed or your self-conception changed at all? Have you, have you expanded or shrunk in, in your suppositions on, on manhood? Um, no, no, I never really like question that i was a man i was just wondering what <laughs> I mean people were talking about yeah so um but i guess one of the other things yeah i'm slowly working through my list of five things but number two on the list was something that i learned that i thought was pretty important and interesting was um because i had never spent too much time reflecting on what it what it means exactly to be a man um yeah i, can, I became well, I, I came to learn that virtually everyone acknowledges that these traditional definitions at least were true. That's what the words were used to mean, adult human male. But if you had asked me back in 2016, what is a male? I probably would have said, you know, XY chromosomes or something like that. That's what makes me male is these chromosomes. Um, but I guess something I've discovered since then is that's not quite right. And you can see it actually pretty easily by just noticing that <clears throat> A whole lot of other organisms feature males, um, but the way that those organisms become male, sometimes it's determined genetically, but not with XY chromosomes. And sometimes it's not determined genetically at all. Sometimes it's a response to the environment. So, for example, some reptiles like crocodiles um, become male, start down the male developmental pathway because of environmental triggers. Not, they don't have sex chromosomes at all. So. Although in humans, having XY chromosomes is what typically causes a human to become male, a typical cause of being male is not the same thing as like what it is to be male. Um, hmm. You know, there was like, there was some cause of this water bottle, something caused it to be the way that it is, some, something in a factory somewhere caused it to be this way. But that sort of factory story about where the water bottle came from is, is not what it is to be a water bottle, right? And you can see that by just noticing that different factories do it differently. Um, so that's kind of how it goes with organisms. Different organisms do it differently, um, just as different factories make water bottles in a different way. Um, so what it is to be a male, just cut to the chase, is uh, having a certain natural disposition to produce 
small gametes to produce sperm. It's a kind of evolutionary strategy uh, that subtypes of species engage in when they engage in sexual reproduction. So that's what it is to be male. But yeah, as I say, this wasn't like a, this didn't change my life or anything like that. Yeah. Um, but it was interesting to learn and I'm glad I learned it. Okay, so I guess that's that's why I got interested in it. Um, but I guess also, no, maybe this is a better answer. I think I did notice kind of instinctively that this was a sort of flaring up of a longer, long-standing battle between these sort of like views of the world that one finds in philosophy. I've already called one of them like postmodernism slash creative anti-realism. Anti-realism because they think that reality itself has no structure. Creative because they think we impose structure on it. So there's this creative anti-realism strain throughout human thought. Um, goes all the way back. There's a kind of naturalistic strain in philosophy that you find going all the way back to the pre-Socratics. And there's a sort of like supernatural strain, a supernaturalist strain going all the way back to the pre-Socratics. And it seemed like this debate was, as I said, a kind of battleground or the location of just another contest between these three worldviews. Um, and so that's probably what attracted me to it. I wanted to see how these worldviews were fighting it out in this new battlefield. Yeah. Have, so, have they... Um, have the what, what's the other view what's the not anti-realist view would it be um, uh, well, stodgy realism uh, is that the counter to creative anti-realism uh no so there's creative anti-realism the way i understand it um and this might be a little bit idiosyncratic but i think it's true um there's a sort of creative anti-realist view going all the way back to as we talked about earlier the sophists people like protagoras um but then also going all the way back to the pre-Socratics, you will find naturalists. Um, so naturalist is somebody who believes in only the natural world, nothing supernatural, um, usually just you know matter and energy, physical stuff. That's all that exists. So there are there were some pre-Socratic naturalists like Democritus. Um, you'll find other naturalists throughout the history of philosophy. Um, Epicurus uh, comes to mind. Um, so yeah, that's another strain of thought that uh, was kind of a big deal in like the ancient world, and then at least in uh, the West, uh, wasn't super popular in the Middle Ages. But then came back, came roaring back um, through the Enlightenment, and then I think peaked. We actually put a date on it. It was sometime around 1950 <laughs> when it peaked. Um, with the peak of uh, logical positivism. That was the peak of naturalism, I think, in recent history. Okay. And since then, its fortunes have been waning, and the fortunes of postmodernism slash creative anti-realism been, have been rising. And then the third view is a kind of supernaturalist view where the natural world exists, it has a kind of structure independent of us, but also um, that's not the whole story, and in fact, it's not the most important part of the story. The natural world is the creation of this prime mover, this God, and all of nature is in some way oriented towards God. Okay, that's the supernaturalist view. The naturalists themselves, um, they tend to be, ooh, yeah, I don't know. There's actually a kind of variety of views, but I think the sort of off-the-shelf stock version of naturalism would be a, a kind of realism about at least the natural world. They tend to think that there are joints or structure in nature that we didn't discover. 
Um, yeah, and so we came along and named these these joints or the structure in nature. Like we came up with the name gold for a certain element, but the element was our always there. We came up with another name, water, for a certain molecule, but the molecule was always there. Um, yeah, that's that's the naturalist view. Okay, so yeah, as I said, uh, this debate about what a man is and what a woman is seemed to be a contest between these sort of three worldviews. Yeah. And what's interesting is the naturalists and the supernaturalists seem to be allied on this on this question. That's at least what I found um, getting into the area. Um, I'm hanging out and dialoguing, and I've become friends with um, philosophers who um, are not supernaturalists. And on a lot of other issues, we don't have much in common. But um, when it comes to like what a male is and what a man is, uh, there we agree. And so there's this kind of shifting alliances like 19th century Europe, there are these shifting alliances between the great powers. And right now, because postmodernism is in ascendancy, mm. naturalists and the supernaturalists have kind of allied on these questions. Do you, do you see, um, do, uh, generally speaking, I don't know if this is a proper question. Do supernatural, uh, so naturalists and supernaturalists are eyeing postmodernists and saying, I uh, guess, well, you guys have all the power, but we don't, we disagree with you. But do, do you guys see like where it goes? Like what, what, how does postmodernism work itself out? Does it, does it just sustain itself somehow? Yeah, I don't know. It's tricky. Um, and I mean, even for some reason that brings to mind like Karl Marx. Um, who, you know, is famous for having a certain view about the direction of history. And his his theory, like, made certain predictions about where, where humans were headed. Um, but he himself was very cautious about making predictions. Um, especially, and it was, it's, he was frustratingly cautious when it came to telling us about what the communist utopia was going to be like. How's it going to work? <laughs> um how will I get, let's start with how will I get breakfast exactly? Um, so he was really pretty mum about those sort of predictions. And um, if you try to figure out why, if you read Marx, um, it seems like maybe one of the reasons was a lot of other, a lot of his contemporaries were um, very enthusiastic about making predictions and a lot of those predictions were falsified. So that's, you don't want to do that. Um, but another reason that he often gave was if his theory is correct, then it doesn't really matter what he says, like things are going to work themselves out, how they're going to work themselves out. Let's just wait and see, you know. Um, so I think even somebody like Karl Marx, who was very forward looking, um, was cautious about making predictions. And I think anybody who who is in the prediction game has probably been humbled by making false predictions. And although sometimes people talk about like, you know, history having a direction and history being headed in a certain way. Um, I think uh, an honest student of history should be really modest about those sorts of predictions. And I feel like people got a lot more humble about predictions, especially people on the political left, especially so-called progressives, after like Trump was elected, because that's not the sort of thing that was supposed to happen, <laughs> right? Like, yeah. if history had... The, the arc of history is long, but it bends towards justice and history as a direction. Um, I think the rise of like ultranationalism in Eastern Europe and the election of Trump really made a lot of people question their views about the direction of history and what's going to happen in the future. 
And I guess I'll just say one other thing. Um, so um, now you know how old I am. So you know I was an 80s kid. And um, so I grew up like in the shadow of the Soviet Union. And that was like an ever-present sort of threat. And even as a young child, like I had, I had got a sense that communism viewed itself as the sort of inevitable march of progress. And so I was kind of bracing myself even as a child for like, this is going to occupy my whole life, right? This is going to be like the battle of my lifetime. Um, little did you know. But, yeah, little did I know, like down comes the wall and the Soviet Union just really quickly evaporated, like way faster than anyone predicted, I bet. Um, and so there was a movement that was like a world power. Um, and it just really quickly packed up shop and disappeared. And so that I think that made an impression on me because now when people sort of trumpet that their their movement is inevitable, their movement is the future. Mm -hmm. um, I'm just, I just immediately think of I think of the Soviet Union. I think of MySpace. <laughs> I think of things like that, that at the time seemed like this is the future. This is this is never going to end. Um, but then just a few few years later, I mentioned logical positivism. I think that had that was really similar, like naturalism was just cruising along. Um, and then all of a sudden it was just like sudden drop in the stock price just <laughs> overnight. So although postmodernism seems um, these days like it's not going anywhere and it's going to be around for a long time, who's to say cultural currents turn really quickly they change yeah. really quickly the tide comes in the tide goes out um and so i think that if any of your viewers find themselves kind of caught up in the idea that like <clears throat> history has a direction don't be on the wrong side of history and we know what that direction is i feel like you just have to remind them of things like myspace <laughs> and the soviet and the soviet union <laughs> and logical positivism yeah, things yeah, things that you think are inevitable and permanent um, can disappear really quickly. So all that to say, I don't really know, Benjamin, um, what's going to become of postmodernism. Maybe it will be very longstanding and permanent, and maybe these cultural changes that we're seeing will become entrenched. But on the other hand, maybe they'll be gone in five years. Yeah. And we'll look back on this conversation and be like, oh, yeah, I remember. I remember when people thought that was a big deal. Well, do do you see, um, not to predict, but um, to play speculative fiction, if if there's a turning away from postmodernism, uh, and you laid out two other uh, camps, one would be supernaturalism and naturalism. Um, yeah. I think that I don't I don't think naturalism's going to go away. I think it's very important. Supernaturalism seems to be. Um, attractive to a lot of people who are coming out of postmodernism or wary of postmodernism, wary of, uh, it doesn't seem like naturalism fulfills what supernaturalism does. And it doesn't seem like postmodern fulfills what yeah. supernatural. So supernaturalism has its own strengths. And I don't even know what that word exactly means, but if it is that third part, um, and you're in that camp, then what, what uh -huh. does it have to offer? Um, that the other two don't. What does it have to offer uh, society? Uh, and why are you invested in it? And what do you have to share of it? Okay. Um, well, I thought uh, I thought the beginning of the question was going to ask, like, <laughs> supposing postmodernism 
declines, its fortunes uh, change, uh, what's going to replace it? But then you sort of asked me to like make the case for supernaturalism. Why should supernaturalism replace it? Um, one thing that I was going to say uh, in response to the first part of the question was, um, so I, I often use this sort of three worldview picture with my students to just give them a kind of handle or a sort of doorway into philosophical investigation. Because I think that when you read a philosopher, any philosopher throughout history, you can kind of roughly locate them on this map. Are they more supernaturalist? Are they postmodernist? Are they naturalist? But I think we need to be honest that these are really like more like overlapping Venn diagrams and people can sort of be borderline cases of two of the views or maybe even borderline cases of all three. Um, and so it's not, the, I don't think it's the case that if postmodernism crumbles, then what's going to replace it is going to be like a pure kind of supernaturalism or a pure kind of naturalism. And in fact, something I was thinking about recently was um, what's kind of interesting about this current incarnation of postmodernism is that it seems to be a kind of um, hybrid or it's the offspring of a kind of weird marriage between supernaturalism and postmodernism. And so what I'm thinking of is um, a certain kind of liberal Christianity went woke, right? And didn't just change and like abandon its supernatural kind of commitments, but it sort of merged with creative postmodernism and made a new thing that's kind of supernaturally, but kind of um, creative anti-realist. And so, yeah, it was sort of a mixture of like um, Marxism and liberal Christianity gave rise to, I think, a, a lot of the phenomena that we're observing these days and what we call wokeness. Um, there's, there's a kind of eschatology in like modern wokeness, like history is headed in a certain direction and there's an emphasis on the value of social justice, which you definitely saw like 20 years ago in liberal Christianity. Like after all the, after all the um, core theological doctrines had been eroded, all that was left was that commitment to social justice. <laughs> um, so yeah, you sort of see that in modern wokeness. Um, and then I guess something else I've noticed is maybe, maybe you've, maybe you've observed this as well. I know I'm not the first one to say this, but like there was a really pure kind of naturalism 20 years ago or so with the, that the new atheism movement, that was like pure naturalism, like, um, hard nosed full speed ahead. It's just atoms in the void. That's all that exists. Um, but then what happened, I don't know exactly when, maybe 10 years ago, it's pretty well documented that that atheist movement also went woke. And so it kept like a lot of the character of its atheist ancestor, but it absorbed a lot of like this emphasis on social justice from the kind of the wokeness phenomenon that we now view as dominant. So yeah, it's, it's interesting how these three worldviews kind yeah. of... Um, mix and produce offspring and some of the offspring are fit and survive and spread <laughs> and some of the offspring are not attractive and not fit and they disappear and so if you if you ask like what's going to replace postmodernism like i think it would be hasty to say okay. oh, it's going to be a pure supernaturalism or yeah, pure naturalism probably it's going to be some some weird incoherent kind of mishmash <laughs> of these views yeah yeah okay um but you had also asked like can I make a case for supernaturalism or why 
Why do I like it? Or maybe how can it influence some healthier offspring, healthier societal uh, trends? Oh, um, yeah. Well, let me think about that for a minute before I answer. Um, well, I think something you had mentioned earlier was it seems like um, this phenomenon that often goes by the name of wokeness has an emphasis on um, like good behavior and sort of you know moral rectitude and behaving in certain ways, achieving certain moral goals. Um, less of an emphasis, I would say, on um, on aesthetics or on beauty. Um, less of an emphasis on truth, and in fact. Uh, I, I guess there, that's probably the least emphasis. <laughs> um, you know, when it, when you ask them what truth is, you get some pretty strange answers and it doesn't look like it's correspondence to reality. Well, there's information, okay. disinformation, and malinformation. Yeah. Misinformation. Right? Yeah, I guess that's true. There is, there is recently a kind of push towards banning misinformation. And there, yeah, there, if you ask what misinformation is and what disinformation is, you get like, a correspondence theory of truth like well there's a way things are and we don't want people spreading lies um so yeah yeah there we we sort of retreat from a true pure kind of creative anti-realism into a view about truth that even naturalists and supernaturalists can agree on hmm. yeah so yeah there, there's kind of a tension between the view that like truth is a social construct but also we need to crack down on misinformation. <laughs> um, yeah, there's a tension between those yeah. two things. But Follow I, the I science agree. and a woman is whatever, uh, whoever a woman feels like. A woman yeah, is. what was the first thing you said? Uh, follow the science. Yeah. Yeah, follow the science. Um, yeah, and also respect self-identification. Yeah, so yeah, so there, there, you're pointing out some interesting tensions. Um, but I, th I thought you put your finger on something important that in the kind of woke movement, you had to rank these like traditional values of truth, the, the true, the good, and the beautiful. We get a kind of overemphasis on the good or their conception of the good, de-emphasis on truth and beauty. Um, in naturalism, I think there's, uh, this is like straight up just armchair speculation. I'm I'm open to changing my mind on this, but I guess like when I think about naturalism, I think about people who have a real strong commitment to the truth. That's what they want. They want to know how reality is. As to moral goodness and beauty, a lot of naturalists uh, tend to be anti-realists about those things. And they tend to think like, well, as, as a philosopher, Michael Roos put it, um, he's at Florida State. He's a famous, he works in like evolutionary psychology. Um, from a philosophical perspective, and he once said that uh, morality is an illusion fobbed off on us by our genes. It's an illusion given to us by our genes. So, of course, we think that certain actions are obligatory and forbidden, but um, this is just our brain's way of getting us to have more and healthier babies. That's all. That's all it's doing. In the same way that our brain rewards us when we eat strawberries and punishes us when we eat something rancid. Yeah. Um, it's just our brain trying to get us to engage in adaptive behaviors. Okay. 
So a whole lot of naturalists tend to have that view of morality. And I think something similar about beauty. They'd say, yeah, we find symmetrical faces beautiful, but that's just because it's Fitness. adaptive to be yeah. attracted to symmetrical faces. Yeah. Um, and they'd give similar stories about like all the sorts of things that we find beautiful. Okay. But with regard to truth, like they're like, that's the truth, right? That's the way reality is. So in naturalism, you get a strong emphasis on truth, um, a de-emphasis on the other things. Okay. Here's the end of my little spiel. Um, one of the reasons I like supernaturalism is it seems like it gives you all three. And it's sort of a, a nicely balanced view about all three. All three are emphasized and valued. Truth, the true, the good, and the beautiful are all valued. Supernaturalists tend to be realists about all those things. Realists about truth, realists about goodness, realists about beauty. Um, and so I just want to quickly add, I mean, some people have asked me, like, do you hold these views, the views that you do on sex and gender because you're religious? People ask me that sort of thing. But I think it's the other direction. Like the reason I like, I'm, I'm Catholic now, the reason I like Catholicism is because of the views that I held before I became Catholic. Right, you sort of develop views and then you affiliate yourself with a tribe. Um, you join a tribe that is sort of on the same page as you, right? We all do this. Um, people start out with natural inclinations to be kind of like Marxist or revolutionary. And then they, no surprise, they join a Marxist community or something like that. People start out with like a high, high value on rationality and skepticism and argument. No surprise, they end up internet atheists or something like that. Um, so I think we all do this. Um, so yeah, I think what attracted me to a kind of supernaturalist worldview and what attracted me to Catholicism in particular was that I was already kind of antecedently disposed to be a realist about beauty and goodness and truth. And yeah, I just found a lot of like-minded people in the Catholic church. Yeah. So the supernaturalists uh, harmonize the good, the beautiful, and the true by aiming them or saying that they're the cause or the path to God, right? That they, they all have a purpose of, they, they all serve something higher, right? The naturalist, all those things serve reproduction, you know, it's, which is the truth. It's just like, this is reality. You have to do these things to survive. Therefore, everything that we do that we think is good and beautiful is probably subservient to fitness or survival because that's the only way that we exist. Anyways, yeah. then the, the creative anti-realists, they orient everything toward, I guess, self-fulfillment, authenticity, identity, self-preservation um, in a way. Yeah. It's autonomy, yeah, it like the, consent. The, the sort of foot the fundamental value of this, um, what we're calling wokeness or what it is to be woke, the fundamental value is, as I said, I think it's like, um, you can fruitfully see it as like the offspring of a kind of liberal Christianity and Marxism. And it seems like what they borrowed from Marxism was viewing history as a sort of struggle, not between the classes as Marx saw it, but um, between something else. Um, the marginalized and the non-marginalized, the privileged and the oppressed. And exactly who occupies those positions can change depending on the flavor of wokeness. But we get this sort of, this um, opposition to hierarchies. The problem with the world, the reason the world is not the way it's supposed to be is because of hierarchies. And some people have put themselves in positions of power. They're the privileged people. 
and they are marginalizing or oppressing other people. And so again, what, what wokeness borrows from Marxism is a desire to um, smash the hierarchy or like eliminate flatten the hierarchy. The terrain. What'd you say? Flatten the terrain. Oh yeah, flatten the terrain. <clears throat> um, so yeah, that seems to be the fundamental value. And the reason I say this is like the offspring of Marxism and Christianity is because you'll find similar things in, in the teachings of Jesus, right? <laughs> um, the first shall be last, the last shall be first. Um, in the church, there's no more uh, Jew or Greek, free or slave, man or woman. We're all just sort of like on a par now. <clears throat> um, God desires to like set the captives free and uh, liberate the oppressed. So yeah, liberal Christianity kept that sort of that emphasis on social justice got married with Marxism. Now you get wokeness. Okay. Um, so yeah, I just wanted to echo what you'd said that I think that you're right. That is the sort of fundamental value of this recent incarnation of postmodernism. Anti-hierarchy trying to eliminate marginalization and oppression. Hmm. Yeah. But you had asked um, So, well, I guess you'd said you were just summarizing what I had said and you said, uh, according to, well, on supernaturalism, the good, the true, and the beautiful are somehow unified. Harmony. And yeah, I guess um, it's not just that these are like instruments by which we become more like God. Uh, the traditional theistic view is that the relationship between God and the true, the good, and the beautiful is much more intimate than that. These aren't just means by which we become more like God. I mean, some you'll hear in the New Testament claims that like, um, yeah, Jesus just is the truth. Um God just is goodness. There's there's some kind of identity going on, some much closer relationship. At the very least, I think we could say it's a sort of grounding relationship or explanation relationship. Um, the good, the true, and the beautiful are all explained ultimately in terms of God. And so in that way, they're sort of unified. So yeah, I guess that's that's kind of a that's a that's a upside of the view. That's an attraction of the view to me. Where, where are you headed? Do you have a, like a big book? Uh, um, like today? Or, an oh. opus? Oh, like in my career? Yeah, I don't know. Um, oh, I guess one day it would be kind of nice to write a book. And um, in academia these days, there's still something kind of prestigious about like having a book. Even though I think if you ask most academics, compare the quality of a book to like five articles in like top journals, they'll pick the articles in the top journals every time. Um, books tend to be not of such a high quality as like a good journal article. But still, for some reason, we, there's like a lot of prestige associated to like writing a book. Um, so I guess it would be nice to write a book, but I don't, I don't know, I, I keep having a problem where I just have an idea that I want to write about. And it's like a paper length idea. Yeah. <laughs> and then I write it. And then I just want to publish it immediately um, because it takes so long to publish things in, in journals anyway that I just want to like get it started because it can, it can take like at least a year, um, sometimes beyond two years. It's ridiculous and there's no reason it should take so long. And so, yeah, as soon as I have an idea, I just like want to write it and publish it immediately and then move on to the next idea. Whereas I imagine, I've never done it, but I imagine what you have to do when you write a book is like spend quite a bit of time writing the book and it could take years. And then my worry would be, especially with the sex gender stuff, like this conversation's moving and evolving so quickly that by the time I finished, it would be obsolete. I don't know. Well, is there a pattern that you see looking at your your 
corpus as it's developing and mid development, like like kind of your spread or or some sort of themes or some sort of perspective that that's dawning. Oh, do you just mean like on the sex gender question or you mean in philosophy in general? Well, sex gender doesn't seem to be the only thing that you're writing on and thinking about. So it's got to be connected somehow to the other things, but maybe just within the domain of sex and gender. Yeah. Oh, um, good question, Benjamin. <laughs> um, yeah, unfortunately, in like the, 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 you know, the busyness of day to day activities and the stress of like just mundane, mundane projects, I sort of lose sight of any sort of overarching project. But I guess, um, as I've hinted at already, when I decide on a new project or what I'm going to work on next, it's typically just something that interests me very deeply. And what is it that interests me? It's things that I consider um, core parts of, you know, my self conception and what I value and what, you know, the sort of things I consider important. And I guess for me, it's, it's these big questions about what the world is really like, and the good, the true and the beautiful and what what this whole thing is all about, what existence is all about and what humans are meant to be and how how we would best flourish, what we should be aiming at. So I guess those are the sorts of projects um, that I think about. Yeah. And maybe someday, I don't know, when I'm 60 or 70 or something, maybe I'll try to write a book where I summarize yeah. <laughs> everything I've learned uh, before I die. Um, that would be nice, I guess. <laughs> Just in fun. case anyone's interested in it. <laughs> yeah. Do you have a Do you have a hidden talent? Is that a flute behind you? I guess. Oh no, or that. Um, so we moved recently. Um, we sold our house um, because we want to move to this other neighborhood where a lot of my daughter's friends live. Um, and this is a house we lived in for nine years and it was the house where my daughter basically grew up. And so we had one of those doorways where you mark your daughter's height, oh, you know, you yeah. mark your child's height. And so when it came time to move, I realized, uh, I got to do, what can I do about this doorway? <laughs> I can't take the doorway with me. I thought about just removing the actual trim and replacing it. Um, but instead I just took this closet rod and just made marks Oh, wow. Um, with a little key to where we'd start. Yeah. And I recorded all the marks for all the heights. Um, so one day, if we get into a new house, um, I could like reproduce the door trim. So that's what all these little marks are. Um, I burned, burned it into the wood. Oh, wonderful. Is your so, uh, daughter argumentative like a philosopher or does she spare you? <laughs> Well, she's uh, now 12 years old, so yeah, she's definitely asserting her independence, and um, I have been trying to mold her mind a little bit from a young age. Uh, I, I tried to teach her about, you know, counterexamples when she was very young. Um, I try to give her reasons, you know, whenever I am asking her to do something, I, I try to provide reasons, and if she objects or wants to investigate the reasons, I don't shut her down. I, I try my best. As far as my patience will allow to like entertain <laughs> the argument. So I think she's gotten pretty good at arguing. Um, and I think she does have a lot of philosophical inclinations. Yeah, we've read some. I tried to find, oh, yeah, I had like philosophy books for children. 
that we read. Um, and I remember when she was younger, there was a book like philosophy for children and we would read it. <clears throat> and then I would tell her, I think this part's wrong. <laughs> she was just amazed that um, like a, a, a book like that could be wrong because huh. she's, you know, like in school, they don't teach you to question the textbook. Um, so I think that was kind of eye-opening for her that like books can be wrong. Textbooks can be wrong. And so whenever you read something, you should be asking yourself, is this true or is this false? Um, but yeah, so far I can still outpace her philosophically. Okay. <laughs> we'll see in, in five years. Did we get through all of your five major discoveries of gender? Um, yeah, I think number one was, uh, the word gender is ambiguous. And so unfortunately in these debates, um, people talk about gender as though we all know what we're talking about and, and yeah. they like kind of consult their intuitions. Like, I wonder if gender is the sort of thing that could be such and such the way that we would consult our intuitions about like justice or consciousness or, mm. um, causation or something like that. Um, but as I said, like, this is a technical term imported from linguistics by psychologists adopted by philosophers. And from the very beginning, it was used in different ways. And so if you're going to have a conversation about these issues, I would recommend just avoiding the word gender, specifying what you're interested in. If you want to talk about biological sex, talk about that. If you want to talk about masculinity and femininity, talk about that. If you want to talk about an internal psychological state, like your sense of what sex you are, just talk about that. Um, try not to use the word gender. That's one thing I learned. Second thing I learned was um, the word sex is not ambiguous, although gender is ambiguous, sex is not ambiguous. Um, if you pay close attention to what the biologists are talking about, it's pretty clear they're not talking about so-called chromosomal sex or so-called hormonal, se hormonal sex. They're not talking about any bit of anatomy. anatomy. Um, what it is to be male is to have a natural disposition to produce sperm. You may not produce sperm because not all dispositions are realized just like this mug may be disposed to break it's just yeah. ceramic it could break pretty easily but it doesn't mean that it will <laughs> it's just disposed to do it so just wanted to mention that real quick before people in the comments say uh what about people who don't produce sperm yeah it's possible to be naturally disposed to produce sperm and then but not to produce sperm okay um third thing was i did mention this one that Virtually all philosophers admit that in mainstream dominant contexts, words like man and woman have traditionally been used to mean adult human male and adult human female. That's just what they mean. Um, so that's not actually very contentious. And the new proposals are intentionally revisionary. It's a bit of conceptual engineering. So if we're being told that, well, actually to be a man is to play a certain kind of social role, you're privileged on sex marked grounds. Um, that's, that's a revisionary proposal. Um, that's a bit of conceptual engineering. That's an attempt to tell us what we should mean by man, not what we have historically meant. Uh, so that was an eye-opening for me. Um, the fourth one I did mention was, um, it turns out there aren't any good arguments for, or sorry, there aren't any good arguments against the traditional definitions of marriage. There aren't any good reasons to think, oh, did I say marriage? I meant um, there aren't any good arguments against the traditional definitions of man and woman. There aren't any good reasons to think that uh, it's false that men are adult human males and it's false that women are adult human females. Which was kind of surprising because if you read this sort of um, contemporary trans activist or trans inclusive feminist literature, 
they just sort of take it for granted that like, well, of course that's false. And we, we learned that in second wave feminism, uh, women are not adult human females. Everybody knows the arguments are well known. No need to rehearse them again. But when you actually dig down into the literature and try to find out what the arguments are, they're just not very good. And so if your uh, viewers are interested in that, I, I just refer them to a paper I wrote called Evaluating Arguments for the Sex-Gender Distinction. Okay, and then the last one really quick since you asked was um, something I discovered was um, <clears throat> it seems like the main project of contemporary trans-inclusive feminist philosophy is to come up with a revisionary definition of man and woman that will respect everybody's self-identification. So they are proposing new definitions um, of man and woman, but there's constraints on the project, not just any definition will do. The definition needs to respect everybody's self-identification so that if somebody says she's a woman, she better meet this definition. And if somebody says he's, he's not a woman, then this person better not meet the definition. So, that's a constraint on the project. Whatever definition we come up with or what these words are to mean going forward, uh, it needs to respect everybody's self-identification. Okay, and then something that I think I've, I, I learned and uh, I wrote it in a recent paper called, I wrote about it in a recent paper called Why the Trans-Inclusion Problem Cannot Be Solved. Um, I think what I've discovered is there's just no way this project could work. <laughs> and that's because there's no definition we could give of man or of woman there's there's no sense we could give those words no no definition we could stipulate that would respect everybody's self-identification and that's because no matter what the word woman means no matter what it means it's going to be one thing to be a woman in that sense it's going to be another thing to believe you're a woman or to identify as a woman whatever woman means and you can see that with really simple examples like um paul Whatever, whatever tall means, and it's kind of difficult to pin down exactly what tall means, but whatever it means, it'll be one thing to be tall, it'll be something else to identify as tall. Some people may be tall without identifying as tall. Some people may identify as tall without being tall. That's just the way self-identification works. It's because it's like this extra step of self-representation. And no matter what you're representing yourself as being, you may be mistaken, no matter what it is that you're representing yourself as being. Um, so yeah, that's something else I learned that I thought was pretty interesting. All right. What and, do you think, and you, you said that, um, twice, I believe you said that, uh, this is part of a feminist, a trans inclusive feminist philosophy. So yeah. there are feminists who think that the trans inclusion is anti-feminist and that that would be the, uh, the, the restart of the second wave, the, I guess, fourth wave or the gender critical feminist, the, uh, non-academic, but this is kind of an academic project, right? Yeah. Is it fair to say? The projects that I'm engaged in? The trans-inclusive feminist, the trans-inclusion or yeah. transness, queer theory is yeah. bound up in feminist theory in some way, shape or form. Yeah. yeah I think there is a divide in contemporary feminist philosophy um, I guess if we took a poll or checked the numbers or certainly checked the influence, um, the, the, the part of the divide, the camp that I'm calling the trans-inclusive feminist philosophers, probably have the greater numbers, certainly have the greater power, 
certainly seem to be exercising a lot of that power in <laughs> uh, criticizing and silencing and gatekeeping um, the other kinds of feminists who, as you rightly pointed out, go by names like gender critical feminists um, or maybe radical feminists. Um, yeah, and I think numbers wise, at least in the sort of in contemporary analytic philosophy, I'd say the trans inclusive philosophers have the numbers. The gender critical feminists are in the minority. Yeah, but there there is that division. And so that's why I use that sort of qualifier trans inclusive feminist philosophers. Yeah, the ones who they're the ones who are engaged in the project of trying to redefine words like man and woman. And the constraint on the project is we got to respect everyone's self-identification. Yeah. The why? gender critical feminists do not they're not engaged in that project. Why do we need to respect? Why is it so important to respect everybody's uh, self-identification? Yeah, well, I've collected some quotations, but um, yeah, I, got, I could just tell you. Uh, if, okay, let's see if I can recall it to my mind. But um, one of the clearest statements of why comes from a 2016 paper from a philosopher named Catherine Jenkins. Uh, and she says, you know what? I'm just, I have it right here. I'll just pull it up real quick. Um, Catherine Jenkins. No, Lee Ryan Jenkins thing. Yeah. All right. Okay, here we go. Um, so, right, this is from, uh, page... 396 of that 2016 paper. Um, so Catherine Jenkins says uh, that this is a foundational premise for her. Foundational premise. So I guess that means no deeper reasons. This is just foundational assumption that transgender identities are entirely valid. That trans women are women and trans men are men. But then she does go on to give reasons. Um, she says, failure to respect the gender identifications of trans people is a serious harm and is conceptually linked to forms of transphobic oppression and even violence. Okay, so that's why. If you don't respect the gender identifications of trans people, that in itself is a serious harm. And then also there's some sort of link, a conceptual link, she says, to oppression and violence, transphobic oppression and violence. Okay, so um, that's, there you go. That's why. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, it's dehumanizing. It's, it's violence. Um, yeah, it's I epistemic guess so. or uh, identical identical violence or something. Uh, yeah. Um, so another philosopher, Talia May Betcher, has written on this a lot. Um, and in Betcher's work, I think you, you get reasons um, like this. Um, if our gender identifications are the sort of things about over which we have first person authority, then if someone disagrees with you about something over which you have first person authority, that in itself is, as you said, dehumanizing, but I'm trying to think of the exact words that Betcher uses, but it's wrong. Um, it's, it's not exactly, uh, this was before the term gaslighting caught on, but yeah, it's sort of a kind of, uh, I don't know. It's like, it's, uh, it's an silent, silencing oppression and something like that. You're denying something that this person has the authority to assert. So, okay. So yeah, don't, and then also, don't disagree with me. <laughs> yeah. Period. But it, 
Yeah, but in some in some cases, we think that's right. Like with regard to whether I'm in pain, I think that is the sort of thing that I have first person authority over. And if a doc, if I'm feeling pain, and a doctor tells me, you know, we ran the scans, and you're not actually in pain, <laughs> um, that would be kind of, um, I don't know, what's the, what's the word, infantilizing or dismissive or something. Like I'm, I I know whether I'm in pain, right? Like. And so uh, Betcher does argue that um, gender is the sort of thing over which we sh should have first-person authority. We should use the words so that it refers to a kind of psychological state over which we have first-person authority. So that if someone disagrees with us, um, they're doing something even worse than what that doctor would be doing to me um, by denying that I'm in pain when I feel it. Um, and also something else Betcher says is uh, if you deny people's gender identifications, then that as Catherine Jenkins also said, Betcher says, this is going to um, perpetuate uh, viewing trans people as evil deceivers or make-believers. That's what she says, like delusional or liars or something like that. Um, they're deceptive or they're delusional. And Betcher says... Um, they this... can't be either under no circumstances? Um, is they, they're, they're like a holy category that is beyond deceit? And delusion um, they, they're like they're like the first human beings in in human history who are beyond the capacity of self-deceit yeah well maybe what maybe what betcher would say is you better have really good reasons or something like that <laughs> because um here's something else betcher adds i guess set aside the question of whether um there could be self-deception or delusion in this way viewing them in this way tends to uh, perpetuate violence um what betcher says is like uh, a common source of anti-trans violence is for example with sex workers um if a client of a sex worker discovers something unexpected let's say um then if this client conceptualizes a situation as one in which uh he was deceived then this client is more likely to react with um, anger and aggression and violence. Okay. So there, those are the reasons. Um, just that's a purely consequentialist reason. Like, can, can I say something? Um, yeah, and I don't, I'll do respect. I'll do respect to you and your profession. But whenever an academic talks about violence, it's got the same sort of meaning as gender. It's like, wait, have you ever been to a war zone? Like, what are you yeah. actually talking about with violence? It's a. Uh... Oh yeah. So well, okay. I agree. That's the violence. It's a, it's a very it's... rhetorical. It's got a lot of punch, but it's but when you look at it, it's just used to manipulate harm. Same thing. Yeah, like, I'd say same thing with oppression. Yeah, same thing with the concept of oppression and the concept of violence. These have certainly experienced a lot of like concept creep, I think it's yeah, called. Inflation. Include yeah. things that weren't traditionally called violence. Ah, oh, that might be another example of the kind of linguistic innovation that people have been engaged in, like expanding the meaning of violence to include like you just disagreeing with me about a core aspect of my identity. That's violence. Same thing with oppression, same thing with harm. Um, except in this case, I guess this is much less clear of a case of uh good linguistic innovation like this might have been it's it's probably bad that we've erased boundaries between like real violence and not real violence okay but anyway um but i think what betcher has in mind is actual real violence like if a client discovers something unexpected in the in this 
in regard to the well, yeah, sex but workers. she's she's using that to to stop people's skepticism. She's like, if if you participate in questioning somebody else's identity and not being wary of them as a male in your space, then you are the yeah. same person as the the John that kills the hooker when he gets the wrong kind of uh, you know. Yeah. Uh, yeah, or maybe you're not as bad as that client, but you are. What's yeah? You are. What's the word they use? I don't know. Not Complicit. enabling or what? Complicit. Complicit. Yeah. yeah. You you've engendered that violence. You've facilitated. You've yeah. You're complicit. Um, you've brought it about, um, and that's why we need to silence speakers who are saying dangerous things, right? Because uh, maybe they're not going to do any violence, but. They're going to incite violence or produce violence or something. That's that's the charge anyway. Um, but yeah, I think you're right. I mean, uh, just putting my contrarian head on real quick as a philosopher, I can't help but like criticize myself. Uh, we, we do this, though, in ethical debates, like over whether it's okay to eat animals or whether abortion's okay or whether euthanasia is okay. We think not only about um, the act itself, but what widespread acceptance of the act, what sort of consequences that would have. So yeah. like... Maybe you think euthanasia is okay in certain um, certain cases, but you might worry that if we make it legal, it will soon spread or something like that from like the good cases to the sketchier cases where people should not be um, being euthanized. Um, yeah, people give similar sorts of arguments against eating meat, like maybe eating grass-fed beef that was humanely raised, that might be okay. But the problem is, unless you oppose meat eating, the end result is going to be these factory farms or something like that. Um, so just in defense of people like Betcher and Jenkins, it's not totally unreasonable to think about the consequences of a certain philosophical perspective. All right. Um, so yeah, that was, I'm yeah. trying to remember why we were talking about that. I guess I did go through my list of five things. Um, oh, and then you had just pointed out, gosh, it seems like philosophers are real bullies with, these words, violence and oppression and so on. <laughs> yeah, I think that's right. Um, <clears throat> I guess something else that comes to mind, uh, I, I think about this sometimes, um, and this is a little bit of self-criticism or this is a self-own, but um, I imagine that, you know, back in the Middle Ages when Christianity, at least in the West, was dominant, um, you could really be a bully rhetorically with words like sin and heresy and stuff like that. Like those would be serious allegations. Like you're engaged in something sinful. You're that's that's heretical. Oh my goodness. Um, yeah. Yeah. So those were the big words back then. Now the big words are violence, harm, oppressive. bigotry, racism, yeah, bigotry, sexist, um, transphobic, discrimination. Yeah. So we humans seem to be doing the same thing. We've just changed the words. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Maybe we'll always do that. I wonder what the words are for. If naturalism were still in charge, what were the really bad words back when naturalism was in charge? I guess unscientific or something like that. Yeah. If you charge someone with being unscientific or irrational, maybe those are the words. You can't those use the bad. word irrational now. Don't don't even go there. Trust me. Yeah. I there was saying somebody has a mental illness. You just don't go there. It's just impolite. Twitter will ban you. So how can people follow you? Do you have like a, uh, uh, and I'll link this in the description. I just wanted to get it on the, the recording. How can people intersect with your work? Maybe. Um, You can follow me on Twitter. Uh, and it's just my name, Thomas Bogardis on Twitter. There's no H in Thomas. It's like Tomas. Tomas. 
Um, that's what my mom calls me. Uh, but yeah, if you just search for that name on Twitter, you will you will find me. Um, and if you Google my name, you'll probably find my professional website, which has all my papers available for free. And if you search for my name on YouTube, you'll find some other some other videos of me. You're racking them up. Yeah. Colin Wright uh, introduced me to you. Um, you've written for his publication uh, at least once, maybe a couple times. Yeah, um, I think just once. Um, but yeah, that's linked on my professional website, something I wrote for Colin Wright, Reality's Last Stand. Um, I wrote a little essay called How Our Shoes Can Help Explain the Biology of Sex or something like that. Yeah, so Colin and I are... You're really uh, trying to like get those foot fetishists on your on your side. You're really appealing that to that clickbait. niche, right? <laughs> yeah, that was, that was some clickbait for the foot fetishists. Um, yeah, pictures included. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I hadn't thought about that. I was just uh, I had another YouTube conversation with a person who thought that um, who argued that sex is not binary because although there are only two sexes, male and female, um, there are four combinations of these sexes. Uh, some organisms are only male, some are only female. Some organisms, like every garden snail, um, are simultaneous hermaphrodites, male and female at the same time. And then some organisms don't reproduce sexually at all. They don't have sexes, so they're neither male nor female. And so the argument was, um, that's why sex isn't binary, because there are actually four settings for an organism's sex. There's just something... Uh, so see, I, this, this is why I think that gender is important, and just to, to counter... To, just to contest for gender it's because the people who are making that argument are trying to use these natural occurrences to re-engineer social phenomena and oh yeah i guess it would be a mistake to think well because sex isn't binary so if somebody was convinced by this argument and they're like ah oh, four combinations of sex therefore sex is not binary therefore gender is not binary something like that yeah that last step is a real leap um the way that gender is typically used um but I guess what I tried to point out in this little essay for Colin Wright was uh, what people mean when they say sex is binary is there are exactly two sexes. That's what they mean. <laughs> it's just There's two settings. With regard to a sex, um, there's only two sexes that something could be. Just like with regard in like binary code, any bit you choose, there's two options, zero or one. Now, of course, you can have more than one bit. And you can combine these bits in interesting ways. And that's my understanding is that's how we get modern com computing. <laughs> okay. But it's still a binary system because there's just two settings, zero and one. Yeah. Okay. You can have a binary star system where there's just two stars. That's what it means to say there's a binary star system. Pick any star you want in that system. There's two options for which star it could be. There's two stars. But of course, there's many ways the stars could be arranged next to each other. Um, there's many different locations they could occupy. It's binary because there's two stars. So I think in a similar way, um, the system of biological sex might be binary, even if in some organisms you, you could have both sexes present. And in some organisms you can have neither sex present. And the analogy I used was like shoes. I think our system of shoes is binary because there's only two kinds of shoes, left and right. Hmm. But there's four ways you can be shooed or shod. Yes. <laughs> uh, you, can, you can have only a left shoe on. You can have only a right shoe on. You can have both shoes on. You can have neither neither shoe on. You can have no shoes on. Um, you could have the shoes on the wrong feet too, but then you're just asking yeah, for Yeah, still though, just two kinds of shoes. I don't know what the analogy would be with right, <laughs> right shoe on the left foot. What would be the analogy with biological sex? I guess that would be like 
after a radical surgery or a kind of transplant, maybe that's what it would be. Hmm. You had a natural disposition to produce sperm, but you got some ovaries transplanted in you. Just thinking out loud now, Benjamin. <laughs> uh, but yeah, the, the system of shoes is binary, just two kinds of shoes, even though there's different ways you can put them on. Yeah, so yeah, Colin Wright introduced us, and I do recommend that your viewers check out Colin Wright's work. He's doing good work. He's doing great. He's doing great, and very excellent to meet you, Thomas. Thanks for your, your afternoon and your all your thoughts, and I'll be sure to send people your way. Okay, thanks for having me on. It was good talking with you.